Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest in our series of criminal cases. Every country, every nation, every era has had its dark secrets and its share of serial killers, both men and women. Our latest case took place in Italy, in the region of Naples, at the southern end of the peninsula. Naples was turbulent, exuberant, and indomitable, a city on the brink of the Second World War where unemployment was widespread, as were superstitions and also where Camorra, the famous local mafia, hovered like a menacing shadow. This was the difficult times in which the terrible crimes of Leonardo Cianciulli, a Neapolitan domestic who did not seem to predispose to kill, occurred. Between 1939 and 1940, she committed the unthinkable when she invited her neighbors home for coffee and for tarot card readings. What subsequently happened to them defies all reason and all forms of humanity. Beyond the urban legend where she had been relegated, the history of the soap maker of Correggio epitomizes another era, a somber period plagued and dominated by superstition and belief in the occult, the means of escaping a war that threatened to break out any time. Let's take a trip to the obscure, darkened back streets and enclaves of the village Corriggio to understand the unique and terrible story of Leonardo Cianciulli. The story begins in Correggio, a small municipality of Emil Romain region in northern Italy. Physically, the place held little appeal. There were a few houses, a bar, a tobacco shop, two cafes, a grocery store, and a church which represented all there was to the countryside. On a late afternoon in December 1939, the fog overwhelmed the surrounding countryside. From the cafes to boutiques and residence yards, the authoritative voice of the nation's leader, Benito Mussolini, could be heard on the radio. He spoke to the Italian people, imploring young, able-bodied men to enlist in the army as soon as possible because a war was on the horizon and it promised to be long. When listening to the news, parents and friends exchanged looks of worrying and concern. What would happen if the country went to war? Meanwhile, crossing the Willard Square, Faustina Seti, a 63-year-old woman, had other things on her mind. She was getting ready to leave Correggio to start a new life. Apart from the fact that nothing ever happened there, the town was nothing but home to gossip and rumors. It should be noted that Faustina Seti was everyone's favorite subject of slander due to her great lady pretensions. Having just left the beauty parlor, Mrs. Seti 
dressed in a fashionable coat, crossed the strangely deserted main street. Ardelia, her young servant, trailed behind, buckling under the weight of two large suitcases. In the village, people everywhere were whispering that the widow Seti had sold all her possessions and had withdrawn all her money from the bank. But what was she going to do with it? That question generated speculation and tongues began to wag. It was thought that at her venerable age, 63 years old, she intended to marry a rich widower from Milan. Others stated that she had planned to live with her family in Venice. In any case, the theory of remarriage remained the one that created the most gossip. Why hadn't she thought of it before, right after becoming a widow, 25 years earlier? Apart from the latest rumor, which generated much gossip, there was also a lot of other whispers about Faustina Seti, that she would inherit a vast fortune from the sale of land and other real estate left to her by her late husband. In fact, it was quite possible that her new fiancé only wanted to take advantage of her. Times were hard for everyone, including fortune hunters. In the pharmacy on the corner of the main street, another possibility was considered. Mrs. Seti was going to immigrate to America, buy a hotel, open a clothing store, and teach Americans about elegance and Italian ingenuity. One thing was certain, Faustina had no intention of returning to Correggio. Before she left home, she made one final tour of the property. Feeling nostalgic, she touched the banisters, lingered in front of a painting, a trinket or a piece of furniture. The house where she had spent more than half her life was the only thing that was not put up for sale. And with good reason, her late husband forbade it in his will. It was the house where he was born, and well as their son Federico, before he too was taken away in a car accident. From that point on, Faustina Seti had been alone in the world, but it would not remain that way for long. It was only a matter of a few hours. That thought alone seemed to rob her of her last ounce of strength. Now everything had been settled, her bags were packed, all that was left to do was to bid a final farewell to one last person, someone who was very dear to her. It was someone who lived a few meters away at 11 de Via Cordelio, a southern woman, dark-haired, stout and direct in word and deed, a Neapolitan with a powerful voice, without pretense, confidence and very charming. Such was Leonardo Cianciulli. Seated on her balcony, Leonardo saw the widow Seti approach from a distance, accompanied by her servant, and made a gesture with her hand beckoning them to come up. The massive wooden doorway was always wide open, a habit she had since growing up in Naples. The friendship that Faustina Seti had with Leonardo had begun eight years earlier. As a survivor of the Europeania earthquakes, Mr. Cianciulli found refuge in the region with her family. Faustina was a neighbor with a gentle heart, modest rural origins, and who had arrived in southern Italy, what seemed quite archaic, but nevertheless, she soon adapted. Nevertheless, the two women were quite different. Their social background, education, the region they grew up in, their dialects, behavior, and character were among the things that separated them. As incredible as it may have seemed, in the end, it was those very differences that brought them together. Faustina, a woman of the other world, and Leonardo, a woman of the people. It should be noted that in Italy, during this era, there was still a strong distrust coupled with much racism that persisted concerning people who migrated from the southern parts of the country, while northern Italy was openly fascist. The southern region remained deeply rooted in a puppet monarchy. The townspeople, mostly poor and illiterate, were forced to immigrate for shelter and employment. 
except that when they arrived, they were scorned and despised by the northern Italians, who for their part prided themselves in being wealthy, industrialized, and refined. They looked down on their fellow citizens, who were perceived as being slanderous, dirty thieves, and liars, among many other criminal traits. As 5 p.m. approached, Leonardo and Faustina were in the living room, seated side by side, hand in hand. The widow Seti, with her two suitcases next to her, watched Leonardo's whirlwind of activity as she told jokes while pulling out a fine china from the cupboard. She still went to make a good impression on her friend, to show her that even a simple villager like her knew how to entertain guests properly. Leonardo glanced at her friend. Her outfit was quite simply impeccable. Her hair was perfectly styled, but her nail polish had a little too red for fingers and withered as her own. And then there was her lipstick. My God, she probably thought not even prostitutes on Ria Borghese would have dared to wear it like that. Not to mention that it reeks of patchouli and roses. Finally, everything has been settled and I'm leaving tonight. I'm never coming back to the stand full of jealous gossip. If only you could have seen them watching me from their windows, hiding behind their curtains like thieves, so that they could talk about my every move to their friends at the tavern or the sewing circle. They're jealous of you. That's the only real explanation. But I absolutely don't want anyone to be jealous of me. Let's change the subject, shall we? In his last letter, Mr. Leali told me that he missed me. Can you believe me that tonight we'll be meeting each other for the very first time? Oh, I'm so embarrassed to be talking like this. I must seem like a silly young schoolgirl. Leonardo heard the whole monologue from her kitchen. I was able to withdraw 50,000 lira, but the banker asked me so many questions and the lawyer seemed to suspect that I was going to embezzle the money or something. My dear Lenusia, you can't imagine the relief that I'm feeling right now. And then this morning, I went to visit Frederico's grave. Leonardo heard her friend crumple her tissue to dab her eyes. She preferred to remain in the kitchen and listen to her friend blabber on. She had grown accustomed to Faustina's mood swings and her tendency to change the subject without notice. Say, Leonardo, have you ever taken the train by yourself? I've never traveled alone by train. Are you even listening to me? Yes, I'm listening, my dear. Since this morning, the servants have been talking about nothing except Mussolini's speech on the radio. I prefer not to turn it on. Bad news always saddens me. And you're right. Do you think that we'll follow Germany's example and get ourselves involved in the stupid conflict? I'm really frightened. I think I made a wise decision. I must absolutely never let this bag out of my sight. Let's hope that there won't be any thieves in the middle of the night. Money loses its value during wartime. Maybe I should have converted it all into jewelry. What would you have done in my place? I would buy a villa facing the Gulf of Vesuvius and I would say a hello to the Naples every morning. Faustina said he flashed her friend an understanding smile. Her teeth were stained with lipstick. Leonardo served her coffee, sugary confectionery, and a glass of liqueur, but Faustina was too much nervous to eat anything. Then continued chatting for a few moments, when suddenly, Leonardo asked her to wait for her there. She needed time to get something from the yard. All alone in the living room, Mrs. Seti drank her glass of liqueur in one gulp to give her a bit of courage. She hadn't slept a wink and now she was overcome with anxiety. She felt as if she was taking her first step into the unknown. She, who was always the eternal housewife, wife of, kept woman, was now about to become the sole master of her destiny and future after tonight. She smiled. Could she even dare to speak of the future at her age? 
In half an hour, she would have to kiss Leonardo goodbye and head for the train station. She hated saying goodbyes. She had already cried with her servants, and she knew that there would be even more tears for her friend. But where had she gone? Right outside, hidden behind the door to the yard, where no one could see her, Leonardo waited. She had a cold, fixed stare. Her pulse was racing, and her breath was shallow as she gripped an enormous axe in her hand. 50,000 lira? 50,000 lira just for you? You old bitch! What do you have that I don't? Why should you be able to fill up your suitcase with new banknotes? My God, it's not fair. Not one bit. When she continued to dwell on those questions, Leonardo felt anger rising up within her. In her sweaty hands, the axe ceased to frighten her. She regained her senses and hid the weapon behind her back, crept quietly into the kitchen, crossed the hallway and stood face to face with smiling Faustina Setti, who had her hands folded over her Fendi bag. That certainly took you a while. You know how I hate talking to myself. You're strangely quiet today. What's wrong? But Leonardo never gave her the chance to finish. She pulled out the axe and struck her several times. Faustina struggled and screamed, but no one could hear or save her. She was trapped. Her bloodied hands tried to grab her killer, who with one swift kick sent her crashing to the ground. But she didn't stop there. Seeing that woman was still breathing, Leonardo grabbed a heavy trinket and finished the job by smashing her skull. This time it was really over, in a pool of blood. The heiress from Correggio lay dead along with all her dreams for the future. A heavy silence fell over the house. Leonardo jumped at the sound of the clock as it struck 7 p.m. It was already dark outside. It was after all winter. Leonardo dragged the body to the basement and double-locked the door. She hid the key in her blouse and returned upstairs to clean the crime scene. She grabbed the bag with 50,000 lira and hid the two suitcases in a shed. When her son Giuseppe arrived at around 9 p.m., he found her in the kitchen preparing a thick tomato sauce made of very fragrant olive oil, the kind that could only be found in Naples. Mother and son sat down and ate together, all alone, staring into each other's eyes. For this beautiful young man, this son whom she adored, Leonardo would sell her soul to the devil. They listened to the radio before going to the bed. The next day, Leonardo left to buy some lay that she usually used to make her artisanal soap. Then she returned home and went back down to the basement. In the darkness, she retrieved the body of Faustina Seti and slowly dismembered it into nine pieces that she tossed into a seven-kilogram tank filled with lay and water. Gently, she stirred the contents until the flesh dissolved. Before completing this gruesome task, she collected the blood in a tub and burnt the victim's clothing in the furnace. In my head, I couldn't hear anything more, like a hollow eggshell. I dissected Faustina's body like ham. I removed a leg, another, and then the hands, and so on. It was at that moment that the criminal history of the soap maker of Correggio truly began. Not much is known of her life prior to these events. Her origins go back to a time and place when the sound of a mandolin could be heard coming from someone's window, an era when fresh linens hung from balconies and the colorful, raucous cries of merchants filled the streets. The story began in Montella, in the Naples region, on April 14, 1894. This was where Leonardo was born and her life was already filled with difficulty and shame. There had been no joy, no tearful mother to welcome her into her arms. Even the midwife had barely glanced at her. During the whole time that she was giving birth, Emilia, the mother, held a crucifix in her hand and recited her prayers. 
begging San Gennaro, the patron saint of those who had just given birth, to come to her aid. The charged climate of the house and the somber expressions of the people in the next room completed the picture. The reason for the grim mood was that the child about to be born was the product of rape. For children born under such circumstances, any expression of joy was not considered appropriate. A few months later, Mariana Cianchilli, Emilia Dinolov's attacker, had agreed to marry her during a shotgun wedding. Thus, he had complied with an old law that permitted a rapist to marry their victim in order to restore their honor. And Montella, Emilia's bastard, seemed to be the only topic of conversation. The child of shame whose father had shamefully dishonored its mother, the child who had been kept hidden. The baby was baptized, Maria Leonarda Asanta Cianciulli, and things began to deteriorate for her parents, who had been joined together only by hate and resentment. After a year of marriage, Mariano Cianciulli left his wife and child for good, never to return. Emilia Dinolev remarried two years later to a flower merchant and moved in with him in a modest shack close to a mill in Avellino. She gave birth to three more children, whom she took care of well while she continued to disdain her eldest daughter. Perhaps as a result of the lack of maternal love, Leonardo's childhood was miserable. From early on, she had developed a conflictual relationship with her mother, who mistreated her, beat her, and insulted her constantly. This profoundly affected the young girl, who had already attempted suicide twice in order to escape her suffering. I was a delicate and sickly child. I had epilepsy, but no one ever paid attention to me or even the thought about taking me to see a specialist. My mother hated me because she never wanted to bring me into this world. I was an unhappy child, and I wanted to die. I tried twice to end it all, but both attempts failed because there was always someone to stop me. They told me that it was a sin, that I would immediately go to hell. I slashed my wrist, even once tried swallowing a broken glass, but I began to believe that I was destined to live a bit longer. I was sure that my mother would have been thrilled with my death. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. When Leonardo was just 16 years old, her mother and stepfather conspired to marry her off to a boy from a good family. But the teenager was stubborn and refused. She believed that he was too old for her since he was already 30 years old. Why did she think that she had any right to choose? Who did she think she was? Her mother was furious and had given an ultimatum. Either she married the man that had been chosen for her or she would have to leave. But the young girl continued to be stubborn and defiant. She had wanted to marry for love and to a man that she chose, namely Rafael Pansardi. 
He was a humble employee at a registry office with whom she had fallen head over heels in love. Frightened but still brave enough to defy maternal authority, Leonardo ran off with Raphael to Europeania where they married in 1914, just as World War I was about to begin. When her mother learned of the marriage, she went crazy and called her all kinds of wild names and put a curse on both her daughter and her fiancé. Although Leonardo was glad to be rid of the mother who had tormented her so much during childhood, she now lived in fear that her mother's curse might one day come true. At the end of the war, the couple moved to Loria in 1918. Italy was on the brink of chaos like many other countries. The Pansardis then faced many financial difficulties, and Leonardo had even spent a short time in prison for fraud. Upon her release, Leonardo, fearful of slander, she and her husband moved once more, this time to Naples. There, she had found work as a saleswoman in a haberdashery while her husband had taken a position as a clerk in a notary office. Leonardo had suffered a series of successive unexplained miscarriages, a total of 17, all of which involved a lengthy stay in the hospital. Only four children survived, three boys. Giuseppe, Biago, and Bernardo, and a little girl named Norma. Fearing that she might lose them, Leonardo brooded over and loved them excessively. She considered them to be miracles because she was still haunted by the memory of her many previous terminated pregnancies. In addition to this personal tragedy, there were still other pressing problems. Specifically, the terrible earthquake of 1930 that had destroyed most of the city of Naples and killed 1,425 people. During the catastrophe, Leonardo had lost her home and all her furniture. She and her family had been sent to an emergency shelter set up by the Red Cross. The experience proved to be very difficult for her, and she resorted to healers and fortune tellers to help ward off her fate. She recalled that when she was a young girl, a gypsy had told her, You shall marry. You will have many children, but all of them will die. Not one will outlive you. In your right hand, I see bars perhaps those belonging to a prison cell. In your left, I see an insane asylum. These prophecy terrified her for a long time. Leonardo was superstitious and certainly believed that her mother's curse was doomed to follow her wherever she went. Consequently, she began to develop an increasing interest in black magic and rituals, in reading books on spiritualism and astrology, and even started reading cards to make ends meet during hard times. Using the compensation granted by the government to victims of the earthquake, the Pansardis and their children had decided to leave Naples and venture to the northern part of the country. More specifically, Reggio Emilia in search of work and a place to live. First, they had rented a small house in Correggio where Leonardo and her husband had established a small business selling goods and second-hand clothing. Their obedient and well-behaved children had started attending school. The eldest, Giuseppe, was enrolled at the University of Milan and had dreamt of becoming a school teacher, while Biagio and Bernardo went to school and little Norma was in kindergarten. Their mother wanted them to take up good jobs in life. Business was slow, but steadily picking up thanks to Leonardo's good business sense and negotiating skills. She was a large, dark-haired woman, rugged, outgoing, and friendly. She always wore her white apron and spoke to everyone. In the small community of Correggio, the presence of this Neapolitan woman with a colorful body accent had charmed its inhabitants. For the northern neighbors, who were accustomed to polenta and meat dishes, Leonardo had introduced them to her local cuisine and had them enthusiastically try tomatoes, stewed in olive oil, fresh pasta, marinated black olives, and mozzarella made from buffalo milk. 
Together with her husband, Rafael, they had managed to set aside enough money to buy a pretty little house located at number 11 via Cordelio with a yard and two balconies, four rooms and a cellar that could also be used to dry sausages and ham when slaughter season arrived. One of Leonardo's neighbors was Mrs. Faustina Setti, a widow of a pensioner and mother to an only son, Federico. Faustina was the product of the provincial upper class but spent half the years in Turin where she had acquired a taste for good life. Furthermore, all her clothing and accessories had come from the city and so there was absolutely no question of her shopping in Correggio. Detested by her neighbors, who found her to be too disdainful and self-involved, Faustina Setti had been able to find a bit of comfort from this woman of the people, with her no-nonsense manners and touching simplicity. In fact, they had met so often over tea and coffee that they finally became very good friends in the truest sense of the word. Little by little, they had begun to share family secrets. Leonardo cried when she spoke of the children she had lost and Faustina's side, and she talked about being a widow and how terrible the loneliness had weighed on her. As a result, she then went on to reveal her plans to remarry and explain that she was ready to leave everything behind her to start a new life. Ideally in a city like Bologna or Milan, but certainly not the countryside which bored her to death and where she could no longer tolerate the gossips of others. Leonardo promised to help her find a prospective suitor and offered to read her tarot cards. I see a rich man. I see a huge city with plenty of shops and lights. Why? It's Milan. There behind the thick fog. Do you see it? Faustina hadn't seen a thing, but she believed it just the same convinced of Leonardo's alleged gift. Then the year 1939 arrived and brought its share of tragic events. Rafael Pansardi had been struck with tuberculosis and was sent to Naples to recover in the more agreeable Mediterranean climate. Leonardo was worried about him. She still loved him. They had gone through so much together, faced so many obstacles, lost many children, even their house in the earthquake along with their loved ones. She had written to him every day to find how he was progressing. Fortunately, everything had seemed to be going well for their children. Her eldest son, Giuseppe, had become a school teacher and worked at a local school in Ballon. Their two other boys had enrolled in university and her daughter, now a teenager, went to a Catholic high school for girls. Leonardo seemed to be fulfilled as a mother. Proud that her children had received an education, especially since she herself had never been able to continue her schooling past the first grade. But above all, Giuseppe had become her reason for living. He was their eldest, her favorite son. In fact, he had given his entire first paycheck as a school teacher to her. Leonardo had wept with joy on that day. She never dreamt that she could have had such a good and devoted son. And then the evil Mussolini started shouting announcements every day on the radio that Italy and the Allies would soon go to war. Men and women of Italy, we need you. Leonardo's worst fears had come true. Giuseppe was enlisted in the army to go fight on the front. She was overwhelmed by the news and completely upset. She had consulted her tarot cards but was not able to see anything. I'd already lost 17 children before I had any of them in my arms. I can't bear to lose another. I don't have the strength. I would die if that ever happened, she cried. As surprised as it may have seemed, it was at this precise moment that she first began thinking of human sacrifices. She had read in a book of black magic that only the death of a woman would be able to ward off fate and to protect her son, Giuseppe, as he fought in the trenches. The thought had slowly begun to develop and became an obsession. Which woman would she kill and how? 
she knew the process would not be easy. And then one evening, while she was peeling potatoes, she had a revelation. She immediately consulted her cards and the answer seemed to satisfy her. She smiled. She knew exactly what she had to do. The gentleman from Pola, does he still write to you? Yes, you can imagine, my dear Linetia, that he wants us to move to Milan. That's wonderful. You see, I was right. It's because of that I'm able to do all of this. Oh, please don't thank me. We are friends, and friends do favors for each other. Faustina said he was delighted. Thanks to Leonardo, she had been able to find an appropriate man who had agreed to marry her as soon as possible. The events during the last few months had been quite difficult. Her only son, Federico, had been killed in a traffic accident. Overnight, she had found herself in this large, empty house that now frightened her. Leonardo had started playing the role of a matchmaker. She knew so many people. Faustina Setti then made a promise to pay her 10,000 lira for her good and loyal service. Leonardo also insisted in handling the task of exchanging and delivering letters to the fiancé, a widower who, like Faustina, sought companionship in her old age. Every week, Leonardo presented Mrs. Setti with a new letter bearing the postmark from the town of Pola, which she also read to her. It was evident that her fiancé had become impatient. He wanted to meet her as soon as possible because the future appeared uncertain. They were on the brink of war, and it seemed wiser to make a decision right away before it became too late. As their plans for marriage had started taking shape, Faustina said his prospective suitor was pressing her to sell everything that she had and join him in Milan, which she did. Mrs. Setti had explained to her perplexed banker as he gave her all the funds in her account as well as her safe that she had to move abroad as soon as possible for family reasons. It is not difficult to imagine what was about to happen. Leonardo had quite simply set a trap for her friend. Her fiancé from Milan was nothing but fiction. The letters that had been sent from Pola with the sender's name, Mr. Marco Leali, were nothing more than a product of her wild imagination and she had taken care of writing and sending them to poor Faustina Setti, who was so gullible that she never suspected a thing. After she set up her terrifying trap and savagely murdered and robbed her victim, Leonardo then shot herself in her cellar to immerse Faustina Setti's remain in lie. From the resulting slurry, she made beauty soaps by adding the essence of lavender and lemon. She even made some as gifts for merchants and assured them that if they liked the product, she would regularly provide them with a supply. As for the victim's blood, she collected it in a tube and used it to make cakes. I waited for the blood to coagulate. I dried it in the oven, mixed it with flour, sugar, chocolate, milk and eggs, as well as a bit of margarine. By kneading all the ingredients together, I was able to make many biscuits which I served with tea to my guests. I tried some too. They were delicious. The 50,000 lira that had been retrieved from Faustina's luggage was paid to the bank and Leonardo kept a small portion of it, which she hid in her closet. The clothing and shoes that had been found in the two suitcases were sold cheaply. Faustina said his disappearance did not alert anyone. As far as people from Correggio were concerned, she might have left with her fortune. The few remaining members of her family scattered all over Italy did not even bother to inquire after her. As for her servants, they simply believed that she went to Venice. But that was not the end of the road for Leonardo Cianciulli. She quickly set her sights on the second victim, another woman from the neighborhood, Francesca Sovi. Francesca Sovi's story was not much different than Faustina Setti's. 
All alone since her mother's death, the aging single woman wanted to find employment out of Correggio and sought advice from Mr. Cianciulli, whose reproachable reputation preceded her. Leonardo promised to help her find a job. In fact, she was well acquainted with the director of a school for girls in Piacenza. The director would require a school teacher or an administrative assistant for sure. Besides, Francesca, you're so cute. You need to make an effort. Constantly grieving for your mother isn't the way that you are going to find a husband. Once Leonardo was the intermediary, in an exchange of letters between the school director and Francesca Zoe, she made one stipulation. Francesca must never tell anyone about her plans under any circumstances. Poor Mrs. Zoe agreed to comply. In exchange for her service, Leonardo charged a fee of 3,000 lira. On September 5, 1940, Francesca Zoe, carrying her small suitcase, had come to say goodbye to Leonardo, who had graciously helped her. She invited her inside, offered her cakes, coffee, and some wine, which had been previously mixed with arsenic. While the young girl was seized with dreadful stomach pains, Leonardo, armed with a butcher's knife, stabbed her several times before dragging her lifeless body to the basement. From her suitcase, she retrieved more personal items and a sum of 8,000 lira, which were Francesca's entire savings. Leonardo Cianciulli's third victim was somewhat different from the others that preceded it. Virginia Casiapo was a former opera singer in search of success. Already in her 50s, divorced and without children, she was now a faded beauty, forced to live in the shadows of her former glory. The long stretch of lean times that she had been facing for some time only got worse as war progressed, since no one wanted to have fun anymore. Furthermore, the theaters were empty, the men were at war and the women were at home or working at factories. This former soprano, who had claimed to have sung at La Scala in Milan, this was the final blow. What was going to happen to her now? While passing through Correggio to visit her parents, she was advised to see a certain Miss Gianciulli, who had connections everywhere, knew many people and even had a gift for reading cards, which could always prove useful. Perhaps for a small fee, she might be able to find something for her. Mrs. Gianciulli would have not asked for a lot because she was a woman who enjoyed helping others. She had known hard times herself and was ideally suited to understand the challenges facing a single woman who had no resources. Without hesitating for a moment, the former opera singer knocked on her door. Leonardo told her of a manager who lived in Florence who might be able to help her relaunch her career despite the current difficulties. She agreed to establish correspondence between the two and if everything went well, Virginia could join him in a few weeks. The ex-singer was delighted with the offer. It was more than she had hoped for. It was a chance for success, perhaps her last. Leonardo advised her, however, not to discuss her plans with anybody, especially not her parents who lived in Correggio who might risk hindering her plans. The deal had been sealed. On September 30, 1940, Virginia went to Leonardo's home to pay her for her services. She agreed to give Leonardo everything she owned, all that she had left in the world, 5,000 lira in treasury bills as well as a certain gold bracelet. But Virginia never took the train to Florence. She had been drugged, killed with an axe, and butchered by Leonardo. Her remains also had been used to make soaps. She ended up in the tank like the others. She had a fatty white flesh like that of a newborn. When I dissolved all of that in lye, I let it boil slowly and added a while of cologne. It made the soap that was creamy and fragrant. I offered some to the neighbors and the grocers. Best of all, I saved the blood to make cookies. This woman was very delighted. However, Virginia's disappearance quickly raised red flags with her friends living in Correggio. 
Her sister-in-law claimed to have seen her entering Leonardo's home on the day of her disappearance. Authorities from Reggio Emilia were immediately informed and investigations were opened. A week later, an informant from the bank in the neighboring town of St. Giorgio informed the police that they received a treasury bill worth of 5,000 lira from Mr. Ablaro Spinarelli. The bill belonged to Virginia. In his defense, Spinarelli declared that he received the bill from a former client of his store, Mrs. Cianciulli, in the order to settle a debt. The police now began to have a clearer idea of what might have occurred. The investigation progressed quickly. Cianciulli's home was searched, but rather than prolong the suspense any longer, but she confessed to the three homicides. However, the police did not believe her. She was an old woman with arthritis. She would have been incapable of committing such carnage all by herself without the help of an accomplice. Initially, her two other sons, Biagio and Bernardo, were suspected, but their mother had defended them tooth and nail and backed up their statements. She even recreated the scene of the crime for the benefit of the police, but it was a descent into horror. In the cellar, Leonardo showed them the soap cauldron and from the shed she brought out a suitcase which belonged to Francesca Sobi. All other possessions had been sold. She was arrested the same day and remanded until her trial began. Her provisional detention lasted six years. During wartime, criminal cases and other judgments had been postponed. The trial for the cannibal soap maker of Correggio began in November 1946, which was one year after the World War II. By using methods that were state-of-the-art for an era when police science had not yet been developed, the body of a destitute had been sent to a morgue to undergo the same soap-making process as Chuanchili's other victims. It was determined that the whole process took no more than 12 minutes, enough time for a human body to melt completely from the chemical effect of the lye and the heat. In her defense, Leonardo Chianchulli said, I am a model citizen. I gave money to the soldiers' hospital in San Giorgio. I donated pots and pans to the munition factories that were running out of metal during the final days of the war. As someone who's already suffered so much, I only wanted to protect my children from life's ups and downs. All throughout her trial, she maintained a calm demeanor, fiddling with her rosary and even with her eyes shone with a strange, dark, almost diabolical glow. As she recounted the details of the murders in a calm voice, many people left the courtroom and some women even became ill. In Naples, the life of the Witch of Correggio became an urban legend. Some had written songs, others plays. In 1977, Marco Bologni made the film Gran Bolito, which was a fictionalized version of Cianciulli's criminal history. French director Guillaume Casacues then released his own film Leonardo in 2007, which was a documentary based on the 1977 film. The unique and terrifying story of Leonardo Cianciulli has been a part of Italy's collective memory for many years. Sometimes portrayed as guilty, sometimes a victim, she has come to symbolize a dark period in fascist, patriarchal Italy where women only had a secondary role, which was to procreate and to obey man's laws. Why did she kill? Was it her greed that erased any trace of her humanity or her superstition and cultural baggage that had turned her into a merciless cannibal criminal? At the end of her trial, Leonardo Cianciulli was found guilty of voluntary homicide with premeditation, concealment, immoral crime, specifically cannibalism. She was sentenced to 30 years in prison including three years in an insane asylum where she died on October 15, 1970. Her sentence fulfilled the gypsy's prediction. In your right hand, I see bars, maybe prison bars, and in your left hand, I see an insane asylum. We're at the end of our show for today. 
so feel free to listen to the other shows on the podcast and take five seconds to leave us a five-star rating on iTunes. It's really important to us. You can also subscribe to the next episodes and follow us on Facebook to suggest new ones. Thank you and see you soon.